0: Welcome to the Circuit of Success podcast. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, and we've got a great guest today by the name of Jay Papazan. Jay, how are you doing today, my friend?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Hey, great uh, great for you to be here. Thankful for you to spend some time with us and our listeners today. And so just like every episode, uh, Jay, we always ask our listeners to really go back and and, uh, talk about some of the things that's made you the man you are today and uh, what's made you successful.
1: Well, gosh, you know, I mean, it's like we could go a million paths. The first thing I think of, um, is my parents. Um, I think I, I got, I won a a fabulous, you know, whatever the lottery is that gives you the parents that you got. Um, my dad was a good local leader and my mom, um, was also a leader in many of her own ways. And I just felt like they always set great examples, always super supportive and they taught me some great values to live by. And, uh, the, the story I only probably told a couple of times is I remember I was running a mile race and my dad had come out to see me. I was probably in fifth or sixth grade and I was leading the race and coming into the second turn of the final lap and me and three other racers got tangled up and went down hard. And you know, like by the time I could actually get up and stand, they had already, the rest of the pack had already gone all the way down the straightaway and was doing the third turn, and I jogged about halfway, you know, to the halfway point, and they were already crossing the finish line, and I just, at that point, I'm bloody, you know, you got a bloody lip, bloody knee, like, you're just, like, feeling sorry for yourself, and I literally walked across the center of the infield to the finish line it stands, and I remember my dad, um, get a little emotional actually talking about it. He like, he pulled me aside and he said, I'm really sorry you fell, but you know if you just walked across the finish line, you would have gotten a standing ovation. Wow. And I was like, it just hit me hard. I was like, don't quit. You can't quit. And that's, that plays in my head a lot. And I think 99% of success is, uh, I think for me at least, has been, as I, I don't think I walked in with a whole lot of extra smarts or talents or work habits. It's just been really refusing to give up when it matters to me. And uh, that story, you know, that that story lives with me a lot. And just to know that that was a core value it wasn't about winning. It was about finishing with pride um, and finishing, you know, with respect. And I just think there's something to that. So that my dad expressed it, but I know I got that from both my parents.
0: Wasn't that amazing too? I mean, especially as parents, I know you've got kids, I've got kids and it's, we never know when that defining moment's going to come in the life of as a parent to our
1: children. I I mean, how
0: many many years later and and it's, you can feel the emotion from you. So that's really cool.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was like a, you know, there's, there's a million milestones like that, but that's the first one I go to is I think my parents both set great examples and they tried to instill me and my sister with some really strong values for how we would conduct our lives.
0: So I know you grew up in Tennessee and you you got your degree and and, uh, got a master's and all that stuff. And tell our listeners, I know you actually went overseas and and worked for a while before you came back to America. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had um, always enjoyed. I'd gone over as a junior in high school. I'd gone and spent two weeks in France. And... um, me and a couple of my buddies, like our favorite professor was the French professor. (laughs) It's weird, like I was his teacher's aide and we would sit and play chess and talk about like his favorite rock and roll albums. And he was a track coach. And so a couple of my buddies were big into track with me and we played soccer and it was coach Nixon. And so like he kind of implanted the seed that, you know, and growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, like an international viewpoint wasn't a normal thing that it was going to be a good thing um, it would be a good thing to go out and see the world and um, my best friend Brian um, I guess his junior year in college he went to France to do a study abroad and he just never came back and that left a huge impression on me you know I'm you know, good buddies with him we're writing letters I'm going over to visit he came back for like two months to finish his degree and then went right back and so I'd gone to visit him twice, and I just remember when I was graduating, I was about a year after him, um, I'd gotten a French degree and all this, and he's like, you should come over and work. And I started looking for opportunities. So I actually got a job um, through a medical company that my dad was associated with. Um, the interview is kind of a, st- a story into itself, but I got a job as a translator in a medical company and went over there and you know, basically became roommates with Brian. And ended up staying for almost two and a half, three years um, in France, between there and Italy.
0: Holy smokes! And so you just did that translate. I know you did some freelance writing. What got you into writing today? Because I think well, you have seven books out today, and what what got you into that?
1: Um, yeah, I've always loved books. I mean, I tried to write my first book when I was probably eleven or twelve. Um, I borrowed a typewriter from my mom, like those actual things, typewriters, <laughs> and um, I put it on like a you know a card table in my room and started writing. I'm probably a combination of The Hobbit and Conan the Barbarian because I read okay. those books and those comic books and all that stuff. Um, but I remember writing all through high school. I always would read and I would always write. I worked in bookstores in college, when, you know, to make money when I wasn't waiting tables. And so it was always there, and I think I thought I would be a writing professor and maybe a novelist someday. And um When I did finally go and get a master's in writing, um, I got—when I was in France, I applied to a bunch of colleges and got into NYU's graduate program and uh, got a master's in English there and studied writing with, like, some amazing people like E.L. Doctorow. Um, I got to meet some really great American writers and and know exactly how hard that path was. But I got a job in publishing, and it was, you know— There's like in Harper Collins, which was a is a huge house. I remember there were only like four editors that got to actually publish fiction, and only two of them really did it full time. And I applied for a job to work for one of them, and she was really sweet. I can't remember her name now, um, but I remember her saying, "You know, you're too ambitious. I need someone who's going to stay here for a long time." Uh, because I'm not going anywhere, and there won't be many other people f- editing fiction. So, you won't be acquiring, you're just going to be helping me. And I don't think that's going to make you happy. Like, she was actually, I mean, she read me right and she did the right thing. But while I was there, I got to publish a lot of nonfiction. And um, that, you know, I think opened my eyes so that when I met Gary, um, you know, years later in 2002, I was already working for him, but I found out he wanted to write books. I think that the idea of writing nonfiction books, I'd already done a lot of nonfiction editing and publishing. I was like very open to that. Whereas I think in high school or even college, I would have said, ah, no, those people are all sellouts. So I'm just going to write fiction, you know? Um, so that, that's kind of the writer's journey for me. Always interested in it, always passionate. I still always have a book with me. I love to read books. Um, and I read nonfiction and fiction now, whereas I used to just be the latest Stephen King or whatever
0: sure now do you find i'm sure you get asked this question a million times and and i'm one of these people so this is a question i I always want to ask people too that write books but a lot of our listeners i hear them all the time say i'd love to write a book one day how do people go about writing a book in today's world
1: um it's probably easier than ever i think i was looking um in 2015 i think 450,000 self self-published books came out wow in one year and um you just think about that and you realize that you you can't read it all. That's, that's my first thought. Like there's no way I can consume that much. I couldn't in my lifetime consume one year's worth of self-published books. Um, So there's tremendous opportunity. What's the struggle, you know, one, if you can write a book, which a lot of people can't do, um, I'll walk through that. You then have to also be heard. You know, to me, the act of writing a book is not actually what people want. That is a big part of the journey. But they want us to be heard, either the story they have to tell or the lessons that they want to share. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And so the bigger struggle now is there's a lot of noise because it's incredibly demograph democratic. You don't have to go to a big house in New York and be accepted. You can just go do it yourself. Um, I think it starts with. Um, and I'm gonna. Are you asking nonfiction or fiction? I could try to answer both, but I've got more authority on the non- nonfiction.
0: Yeah, nonfiction.
1: Yeah, I think you have to have something to share. And then you've got to be willing to do – the The easy part is writing the first draft. I think a lot of people see that as the biggest challenge. I think the hard part is actually editing that. Um, I published a book a long time ago called The 11th Draft. And the title kind of told you everything. This guy didn't feel like anything he ever wrote was worth anything until he'd completely rewritten it 11 times. And that stuck with me because I was like, yeah, that's kind of true. The best stuff happens when you come back and ask, can I say this better? Can I say this better? Can I say this better? So on and so on. So um, I usually tell people, why don't you just start? Um, I mean, sometimes the first step I just tell people is, why don't you do um, a 66-day challenge, which is out of our book, The One Thing, like, you know, form the habit of getting up an hour earlier. And they're like, why? I guess, well, when when are you going to write? You know, most people can't consistently set aside time to write, and therefore they will never write. They get the urge at you know ten o'clock on a Friday night after the kids are asleep and they've had two glasses of wine. Well, that's not sustainable, right? That's not if you build that habit. Now you know why a lot of writers become alcoholics. So you want to build a healthy habit, and that I think that begins with making it one of the first things you do, or you find a time that you can absolutely control. And you just go in there and whether it's one word or 10 pages, you write every day. Hmm. And that's, that's really it. And if you do that, whether it'll be in one year or 10 years, eventually you'll have a first draft and then you'll go to people that you trust and who also love you enough to tell you what is good and what isn't good. Um, You'll have a few carefully selected readers that are highly critical that won't just bury you in abuse But they'll tell you what you need to do. Like, this part doesn't make sense to me. Or this is really poorly written. And then you'll go back and you'll rewrite it. And you'll do that until it's ready to go. Um, It's not like a website. Like, you can publish a website with your ideas on it tomorrow. You can publish a video on YouTube with your big ideas on it tonight. Um, It's not hard. And those things are also things that if you don't like the original version, you just re-record it or you redo it. And when people go to watch that video, they see version 2 or version 3 or version 4. Does that make sense? They're mm-hmm. they're not as permanent. But if you put a book out into the world, you can go back and write a revised edition. But everybody who got the first edition still has the wrong stuff. So you really want to get it right. And you want to get it right for as many potential readers as you can, which is just a lot of work. And so I longer, usually tell people, pleasure. yeah, don't go crazy on... If you see the big picture you can just be shut down say acknowledge that it's a journey it's not you don't set a goal of writing a book this year set a goal of building the habit of making real progress every day this year and then see where that takes you
0: i like it let's talk about those habits you've got a lot of great stuff i want to dive into from the book the one thing uh, people can find this anywhere barnes and noble amazon you name it it's a great book uh, that's actually how I met Jay was through this book and so um, just pick it up if you can but anyway let's let's talk about a couple things one is uh, you already mentioned it getting up one hour earlier so whether it's to write a book or workout or whatever it is let's talk about that discipline and why that's important part
1: well um, in the book we kind of you know, the, the big idea in the book is figure out the thing that matters most and make sure you do it I mean, that would be the simplest way to put it. And matters most means the most effectual, right? What's the number one thing I can do for my marriage, for my work, my business? And a lot of people actually know what that is and feel guilty for not doing it. And so we spend a lot of time looking into, um, we have a belief, we call it time blocking. You make appointments with yourself to do it. And we did a lot of research around how our body works, how our willpower works. And so just to kind of sum that up without you know getting too far in the weeds, if you want to build a new habit or reinforce one, um, it's best to kind of build a habit of doing it at roughly the same time every day and preferably in the morning. And in the morning, we tend to have more willpower. So on the bad days when you didn't sleep well, you can kind of grit your teeth and just do it anyway. And over the course of your life, that gives you many, many more days doing whatever that is. Um, in the short term, you know, you missed one, you got one extra day this month. What's the big deal? It's that extra day each month for ten years that adds up to like a third of a year advantage on your competitors. So y- y- it just adds up. And then the other one, if you go in the morning, right? So get up an hour earlier. The genius of this, and if you study really successful people, you hear it again and again and again. They're getting up at four and five a.m because everybody else is still asleep. There's no distractions. You have wonderful control of your time then. And the moment you walk into your office, you lose, even if you're the boss, you lose a level of control because there could be a crisis. There could be an emergency that would trump what you thought was gonna be your priority that day, right? You're about to lose your number one account. Well, you're not gonna work on your book for the next hour. You're gonna go work on your number one account. So the beauty here is if you want to form a habit, um, pick a time as early as you can manage. And if you need to, just start getting up early because that gives you that free time when everybody else is you know, still shuffling around with their newspaper you know, or walking their dog. There's nobody calling you. There's nothing happening on Facebook. You control that time and you can get really wonderful work done. Um, and the 66 days, just to kind of put the final cap on it, Um, we asked the question and tried to find research to back it up, how long does it actually take to form a new habit? And there's a group out of Australia that asked a bunch of people to take on new health habits, and it didn't really matter what it was, um, running, yoga, drinking water, quitting smoking, whatever it was, and they just followed them around for the better part of a year, asking them, did you do it and how hard was it? And they found that on average, about 66 days into doing it, It got as easy as it was functionally going to get. Ninety-five percent of the effort went away, and they named that habit formation. And so, you know, at the very, a lot of people think it takes a month or twenty-one days, and that's just not enough time. You have to focus on it a little longer and put more effort into it. But you can absolutely start engineering your days from the ground up by just forming a few power habits over time that will really get you going. And that to me has become central to my philosophy on how I try to build my life.
0: Would you find in that, that blocking of time, do you spend time in quiet time? You know, you, a journal, I mean, I have found in my career it's been very helpful with just me, a journal, quiet time, visioning my future. What does what uh, Jay do in those times when you get up an hour early?
1: Um, well, three days a week, my wife and I work out. So we get up and we have a trainer show up at 5:30, and we've been doing that for six and a half years now. Um, I had some health challenges and my wife wanted to be along on the journey and we had small kids and I'm like, well, I don't want to take turns going to the gym. I don't want to pay a babysitter so we can go to the gym. I don't want to go to the kind of gym with a daycare and just abandon our kids there. And like the solution was to bring the gym to us. And, um, so we pretty much still get up at five o'clock every day. And so on the workout days, we work out together and we're often are talking and planning. She's also an entrepreneur. And on the non-workout days, like this morning was a non-workout day, um, you know, I'm reading. And every day, kind of the last thing I do, even if I have to sit in my car before I go into the parking, you know, out of the parking lot and into the, into the building, is I try to look at my calendar and that's my kind of quiet time. I just study my calendar. You know, what is it that I prioritized, and I blocked off time to do today? And I don't have my whole calendar filled up. I try not to, at least. There are times when that happens. But my goal is to have a few hours for my core, core work every day writing for me, right? I, I'm a writer. And the rest of it is to get everything else done. And I, I try to have lots of blocks of time because you never know what's going to happen. And you want to have that space in your day so that you can either give more time to the things that matter or deal with like I have employees, like what if there's a crisis? So I try to, you know, it's also a good recipe for being able to actually eat and go to the bathroom because there's yeah. been times in my career where I wasn't smart enough to actually build time in to do those things. And I would look up and I'd be like, I didn't eat today. uh,
0: Let's talk about one of the best parts, I think, of the book. There's Again, there's so many of them. But my favorite thing, it kind of staggers the imagination, if you will, is the domino effect. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a a central metaphor for the book. Um, A lot of things like let's take the writing of the book. Like there's all these things that have to happen for you to be a published author. And our point is yes. And what you have to do is line up the priority. Start with the number one priority and then work from there. And the more we can align our priorities, it's like dominoes. Sometimes when you knock over one, a whole bunch will fall down. And instead of doing a lot of stuff, you just do one thing and it gets you a lot of things in exchange. And so the the dominoes, like there's this guy uh, in 1984, his name's Lord Winehead, what, excuse me, Lord, Lorne Whitehead, got his name correct. And he wrote a journal uh, in the Journal of American Physics that a two inch domino could knock over a three inch domino and a three inch domino could knock over two, four and a half inch domino. Basically, every domino could knock over one that was 50 percent larger. And he built them physically. And I think by the ninth or tenth domino, the two inch domino that he started with was, had built up so much minimum momentum, it was knocking over a domino the size of a door. And he described it as what began with a gentle tick, ended with a loud slam. And so we've had a couple of ahas. Like one, I mean, the world record for just lining up regular dominoes is like almost four and a half million. So you can do one thing and have millions of things happen if you get it just right. But what Lauren Whitehead taught us is that it also can build in magnitude. And this is the part like my kids actually like walked away from the book going, wow, that's cool. Um, because the idea that the dominoes not only can keep knocking each other over, but they can keep getting that much bigger. Like I think by the 23rd one, if you belted that progression, it would knock over one the size of the Eiffel Tower. Um, By the 31st, it would knock over one taller than Mount Everest. And just 57 dominoes into that run, if you could build them that big, it would knock over that two-inch domino. It would have built up to knock over one that would stretch from the earth to the moon. And so it's just exponential. And... My ahas, when you look at that, we graphed it out in the book. It's in the one of the first few pages. It looks like a hockey stick on its side. And that is the shape of success. In the beginning, you're doing the same thing. And it's actually kind of monotonous and you're not getting a lot of feedback. Um, You know you might be making progress, but it doesn't feel like much. And then at some point, there's that curve. You get to the elbow and things really do start to get magical. And we've studied businesses, Brett, I mean, so many. And on average, I think the biggest companies in the world, it took them seven and a half to eight years to really pop. Like it doesn't happen overnight. You know, you hear these stories about Uber and all these you know, unicorn companies, and sometimes it's misleading. Yeah, they formed the company a few years ago, but this idea was burning in someone's head for a lot longer than that. And when we actually looked under the hood, you know, you're doing something, you're doing something, you're doing something. And because you're doing the right thing for that amount of time, really amazing things happen. And so that to me is the domino effect. And that's the metaphor in the book. We want people to line up their dominoes, start with the first domino every single day. And what'll amaze you, you won't even realize it. You'll just look up one day and you're knocking over bigger and bigger dominoes and you're getting more and more impact.
0: Well, I think that comes with time too, right? I mean, it's, yes, it's time, but it is, it's patience, it's belief, it's discipline, it's passion. I mean, all those things are what you got to have to create success in your life. When you look back, Jay, at your life, what, what risk are you happy that you took?
1: Um, I asked my wife to marry me. That was like, (laughs) you know, could have been disaster, (laughs) I guess. I know that like, what is it? 50% of those, those that ask don't work out for people, but, um, that's probably the number one best decision I've made and I love that she's also entrepreneurial. She's built her own business and, you know, we, it's like it's probably boring for most people, but like we're always talking about this venture, that venture, we're working out and we're talking about our kids and our travels and our businesses. Sure. So that's, I, 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 don't know how risky it was, but that was like the first thing that came to my mind. Um, I mean, everything is kind of a risk, like you invest in partnerships. I mean, I partnered with Gary, that's a risk. Um, But boy, is that paid off. I mean, no one has taught me to think bigger in the long run than my current partner, Gary. I mean, and working with him has been probably the greatest privilege I've had professionally um, to have, I mean, a billionaire as my mentor. I mean, are you kidding? Um, yeah, I so never Taylor expected Keller, that.
0: This is who Gill- Gary is. Gary Keller, one of the authors of the book, The One Thing, with Jay, but he's done obviously stuff much, much bigger than that. So let's talk about that for a second.
1: Sure. I mean, um, we don't do any advertising, um, but maybe a lot of our agents do. But, you know, 34 years ago, Gary started a real estate company straight out of college in a town he'd never lived in. And he built a company called Keller Williams. And today, um, in 30 years is how long it took him, it's now the largest real estate company in terms of the agents affiliated with it in the world, and we're second and soon to be first in home sold and the volume of homes sold. So he's built the largest real estate franchise company in the world, and he built it completely from scratch. And it's... Um, like we're so dominant like if we're we have about 150,000 agents in our company um the number 2 has like i don't know less than 80,000
0: holy smokes
1: it's not like a it's not like there's a small gap it's a it's a ginormous leap from number 2 to number 1 and he's built it based on the principles a lot of which were hypotheses before we did the 5 years of research he just said i think this is true and when we were building the outline we were like yeah i think multitasking is wrong yeah and I think in the mornings better and why is that and that became willpower right and we had our hypotheses and we unleashed our researchers and we read tons and tons of books and that's Gary, you know, um, he built a real estate company not because he was a great salesperson but because he loves to teach. And that's why you have someone who's built this company who's authored so many books. And sure. I'm just happy to be along for that ride. I met him because I'd been in publishing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Not many people would say they have a billionaire as a uh, as a mentor, so congrats to you for having that. What would you say is the, the one thing, no pun intended here with your book here, but what's the one thing, if you could tell our listeners, that you've learned from Gary that you need to focus on every single day of your life to be successful?
1: Um, like, I, I immediately want to tell you two things in violation well, of that that's principle. Fine.
0: That's, that's okay. We'll start uh, a new book called The Two Things.
1: Yeah, this is the other thing. Um, <laughs> if it's dominoes, the first domino is, is you always have to think bigger, Um, ask a bigger question for your life. And, you know, we talk about this in the book that the answers we get are directly proportional to the questions we ask. And I think um, when we're kids, we ask big questions because we were naive and we just believed everything was possible. And at some point we become afraid of failure and we ask safer questions. Um, And I think that reduces the size of our dreams and our goals. And every time I think I'm thinking big um, and I spend time with Gary and I share with him what we're doing, he will look at it and see something bigger, a bigger opportunity that I just was blind to. And so I I always now know that no matter how big I think I'm thinking, I can probably still double it. And that there's a real benefit to that. Um, I'm not attached to the absolute outcomes. I'm attached to the journey. And if we're striving and failing to build a billion-dollar company instead of a million-dollar company, well, failure might still be like a half-billion-dollar company. It's just so much bigger, and it will change so many more lives and have such bigger impact than our original vision. And so you've gotta be okay with failing a lot to do this game, but it's what I wanna teach my kids, and it's something that I, I still am teaching myself. So that's been the gift that the number one, and I think if you ask my wife, She would also say that if we had to just give one answer, that would be the thing, the biggest gift of being in this relationship is that we've thought bigger and we now actively try to think bigger for our lives and the ones we love. If there was a second one and it's his mantra and it will probably be the sequel, um, is that no one accomplishes anything worthwhile by themselves, is that it's always succeeding through others. And um, that's been huge for me and that as a business person, You know, if I'm just doing it all the time and I'm not really growing other leaders around me, um, it'll all fall apart when I'm gone. And to really build a big company, a legacy company, a legacy project, you have to learn to succeed through other people. And when I keep those two things in mind, I think pretty much everything else is secondary. You know, do I have a big enough vision and do I have the right people on the team? And if the right people and I'm going for the best possible, I mean, anything's possible now.
0: So how do you do that? You must be reading my notes, actually, because literally my next question was, what have you done to build a successful team internally and externally? So I'm just going to ask you to answer that question. What have you
1: done? What can we do to build great teams? Um, Well, we've been, as a company, you know, I remember when I first, one of the first writing projects I did with Gary is that he had paid, I mean, like was paying a consultant a million dollars a year to try to help him be a better hirer. And a lot of the stuff that we were learning was very corporate feeling and technical. And we all sat down and said, how can we just kind of humanize this? Because again, Gary's a teacher. And if people don't understand it, they won't do it. And so we wrote a course with a woman named Kelly Parham or Kelly White. One of them's her maiden name and one of them's her married name, I forget, but if she's listening, hey Kelly. But we got together and we wrote a course called Career Visioning. And I would bet you know since 2001, when that happened, We've spent as a company on average of one to three million dollars a year in investing in how we could be better hirers and accountability partners for the people we hire. And we have a real process for doing it. And so we invested in that heavily. I mean, I'm looking at my feet and I've got paid one page talent management. Like I'm we're always reading it. We're always that's a book, by the way. We're always studying it. Um, and we have a process and our process is, you know, we, we just a real short version, you know, you have a role and you have goals and you have an org chart that matches them. And then you say, well, if I'm looking for a CFO for my company, you know, what are the three things that they have to do well or are going to fire them? You don't have the long job description. It's a very short and then you say, wow, so a person who did those things exceptionally well, what would they look like? What do they talk? Where do they go to college? We build a missing persons report. And then we put that out in the world. That's what our job search process looks like. A lot of referrals, but we're looking for someone very specific, not not a title. And then we, we take them through. I think I, the first time I interviewed with Keller Williams, um, I was applying for a newsletter writer two position, and they put me through five separate interviews and I had to take two behavioral assessments. I thought it was a front for the CIA. I'm not kidding you. So they put a lot of barriers between people getting on the team. You know, are they a behavioral match for the job? Um, what do the references say? And what are the references references say? I mean, literally taking it out that far, and then the first 90 to 100 days, we test our assumptions that we made the right hire and have to defend them. So we have a very evolved process, but if someone's going, oh man, I didn't even write all that down, I'm driving. um, I would just say get incredibly, it all begins with getting incredibly clear about what you need. Um, And it's, if you're just in pain and looking for someone to remove the pain, you're probably not thinking big enough for the position and you'll hire someone beneath it and they won't have a big enough path. So, you know, what is it that we need today in the business and what would they be doing in five years if they were really amazing talent? And really narrow it down. Like I said, what are the three things that if they don't do well, you're going to have to fire them? And when you have real clarity about what you're looking for, I think you do a much better job of hiring people. And most people, I mean, I think they just need help. And they know it's help and anything that shows up looks like help. And that leads to a lot of big mistakes where people do provide help, but they can't grow with the business or they're not a good match for the business.
0: Well, what you talked about earlier is you can't do it alone. And, and what I'm hearing from you is your team is not doing it alone. No matter how many people you have working for the company, you guys are putting lots of just not only time and talent, but also lots of money into making sure you've got the right people on the team. That's oh, great. yeah! Oh yeah. So what- what do you, what do you do to inspire others right now? I mean, uh, of course, you've got all these employees around the country and and uh, sometimes, whether you're a you know in the real estate world that you guys are in or in the financial world that we're in or you're an entrepreneur, whatever it may be, what do you finding that the best of the best do to inspire themselves each and every day?
1: That's a hard question because I think you are or you aren't. Um, so maybe I'm being contrarian here. like I if I'm hiring people, if I have to motivate them, there's probably a problem. Um, I can encourage them if they get down or, or. but most, I want people who are kind of self-managed and they they show up with bright eyes and they're, they're. I'm, I'd rather say woe than giddy up, as my chiropractor once told me. Um, so I don't know, I don't come from that place. Um, well, you would
0: subscribe to the theory then like Steve Jobs talks about, hire the greatest, best people, show them a vision and then get out of the way.
1: Yeah, that that's thank you. That you know pretend like I said that. Okay. Um I'm not I mean Steve Jobs is brilliant that way, but I do think if you surround yourself with talent and they understand what their mission is and what the vision is for the whole entire company, um you get to be a coach instead of a manager. And there's a big difference between those. I'd much rather be leading people or coaching them than managing them. If I'm managing them, I'm like, well, why did you go home at five? Why didn't you complete your assignment? There's there's usually a problem happening yeah, and it's I not pleasant for me or for them because I hate being micromanaged and I can do it when I'm on my worst days. I don't ever want to do it, um, but I certainly don't want to have to do it because someone's not meeting my expectations. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think well, Gary inspires true. me by living what he preaches and I hope I do that for my people. But I don't walk around going, how can I inspire my staff today? I just don't do that.
0: Right. Well, I think I subscribe to the Steve Jobs thing that I talked about. I mean, that's what's great about our people is, you know, there's not a lot of the hoorah coaching, got to get them fired up because you hire the right people. Again, we have a vision as a firm, where we're going, what we want to do for our community. And you do those things and you hire the right people. It just, it just happens. Things just go out and they just happen. Um, What would you do right now
1: if you knew you couldn't fail? Uh oh, um, I don't know. Play the piano. I've always wanted to play it, but I've never even taken a lesson. <laughs>
0: that would be cool, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 think that, um, that's another one of those questions. That's a great question. So thank you. But it's like one of those that I fight a little bit because I, I try to live my life in a way that I'm going to be trying those things that make me uncomfortable You know like so much that happens that's really you know the old saying where the the magic happens outside of your comfort zone i i get that and my wife and i we go on a two-day retreat every year just to talk about our five-year and our one-year goals and what we don't want to look up is and look up and have regrets right and that's a huge part of the book if you made it all the way to the end we talk about a life of no regrets and I lived with this book for five years before it was published, and now we're finishing up our fourth year, and I've been doing my best to I mean, live it. So, you know, roughly a third of my life, you know, has now been invested in this kind of thinking. And I, I just, I think we're doing it already. You know, I, I looked up one day, and like a, one of the bigger, hairier things that I didn't think was possible was I wanted to buy some land. And Texas, if you like to be in the outdoors, there's very little public land. Um, not much that you could certainly I grew up in Tennessee you could go take your son hunting and my son was wanting me to take him hunting and I was having to beg and borrow and I just remember we put it on our five-year goals I was like well you know and and at that time in seven or eight years Gus is gonna be out of the house and right now this is and and so we just started asking a bigger question and we ended up finding a partner who was in the same place and made it happen twice as fast as we thought we could and I don't know, so I, I just think I'd, I'd rather go ahead and and address it now and fail my way forward um, because I don't really care about failing. <laughs> I just Absolutely. think that's part of the journey. So I don't know. I, I'm well, not I trying a to great be. The, answer. The, no, no, yeah, no. I'm not trying to be contrarian, but I do think that failing is just integral to the process.
0: I actually appreciate that answer because I, I appreciate the fact that if if it's a risk and and you think you can fail, you go ahead and you do it anyway, right? Get the people on the bus that are good. Get the plan make smart choices and go out and make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what, what's your moonshot? So when you think about your one and five year goals, you and your wife talk about, I mean, what's the game changer uh, for you and your team and, and, and your vision?
1: Oh, wow. That's a great one. I, um been talking to, um, you know, we started a new company um, called productive and we wanted to build something around the one thing. And, you know, I'm staying where I'm at. So I went and found someone. So, Jeff Woods is the person we, we you know, recruited and found and had been grooming to do this job. And our moonshot like I had a big aha last summer, we, we wrote our first course called "Time Blocking Mastery," which is really about walking people through that 66 days and giving them a lot of support. And that was just doing great. And my "aha was is like, you know, even the name productive as for a company, that's cool. but what we're actually in the business of is giving people their time back. And like that was like, like a, a real moment of clarity. I mean, all of this is about time and how well we employ it and what we get out of it. Being productive is getting the most you can out of your time. Time was the thing that was there. And I was like, wow, we're in the business of time. And I've always, and ever since I've been working with Gary and trying to live some of the processes, time blocking, I'm very dissatisfied with the tools we have for managing our time. So I do think our moonshot is that um, we're gonna be building a better calendar. I think that's just something, we've been talking about it, we've been road mapping it, and it'll probably start with a paper-based one, but eventually, I mean, the reality is, our five-year goal would be to have a technology company, because when I look at my phone, I can see not even a full day of my time. Um, When I look at my computer, it's hard to get, if you've got big goals for your life, you want a big perspective on time. So I literally still carry like a -a month-at-a-glance paper calendar and I love technology, but what it's just not replicating the process that we believe in. So I think that our moonshot, and it may not be, I, I I would like to change the way people view their time and in doing so, give them more of it back.
0: Well I, I, if you need a beta tester on that, sign me up. I'm in because okay. I, I would agree with you on that. It's I mean think about it. time is the one of the things you can't make more of it, right? Just to your point of land earlier, you can't make more land. You can't make more time, and it's I, and one of the things I always talk about with people is you. It's not time management; it's self management, is the way I look at it. Because yes. we all have 24 hours in a day, right? You do, I do. the The busiest people in the world have 24 hours. How do we manage it? And I think to your thing, your uh, you, and you call it productivity or production.
1: The company is productive, but instead of a C, yep. it's got a K. I like so, it. yep, and uh, that's kind of the basis for it. And we're you know, it's it's just. We're incubating this, like, here's the big domino, and what's the smallest domino we can start with? And we're just working our way forward. We're willing, if it takes seven or eight years, we're willing for that to happen, but eventually that's something, and, you know, technology companies aren't cheap, so we have to earn the right to get into that space. Um, But I think it's something we can do, and we can make a meaningful impact, and that gets me excited. I think of all the time I've wasted in my life. Some of it has been wonderfully wasted on a beach with, you know, doing nothing intentionally. But there's also time that I was at work that was not necessary because I wasn't a better master of my time that I could have been giving to my family or my friends or other things. And I like to, I personally am on that path. And as many people as I can drag along behind me, I will. Well, I know you
0: and I have talked briefly about the circuit of success and those four pillars, and, and so we'll walk through those with our listeners, and when you hear the word attitude, um, you know, the, the alarm goes off, at least in my world, the alarm goes off, and, and I have a choice to make every day, and that choice is an attitude, right? I can have a good one or I can have a bad one, so walk us through your attitude, how you kind of can set that off, because not every day you want to get up and just, you know, go crush it, so what do you do with your attitude each day?
1: I think that, um, oh gosh, you know, it's am uh, trying to think there's a book called Essentialism. And I had a conversation with a guy named Stu McLaren um, who read our book and sold his business. And uh, there's a long story. But um, when we talk about what our mission is in life and in the book, we call it your purpose. You know, I think one of the best ways to stay in touch with it is to remind ourselves of the cost of not committing to it. And I think a lot of people look at, "Oh, if I can do this, I'll be a billionaire," or if I can do this, I'll have, you know, blah 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 X. And they look at the benefit side of the equation. And so I kind of come at it another way and I remind myself of what my I'm doing all this for. So, if I for my attitude to be in the right place. You know, there's days I walk up and I'm ready to go. But on those days that I'm not, You know, at the top of my goal sheet, it says to be the best father and husband I can be. And when I really did my soul searching and I looked at, you know, why do I want to do this? And why am I doing this? And why am I on the days that you work on things that, you know, they matter, but you just think your heart's not in it. And there's this integrity I want to have with my children. And I felt like if I mail it in and don't do my best work, I'm not being my authentic self to them And the thought of failing that relationship, the cost is very high for me. And I also remember a conversation I had with my wife when I was really about to mail in um, a delivery of a book that I didn't want to have to write, but it was something the business needed us to do. And I would come up with this elaborate rationalization for doing a mediocre book. And my wife, being a great accountability partner, I think she was just telling me the truth, said, you know, you tell your kids and you tell your wife that you're a writer and it really just sounds like you're mailing this one in. I mean, she just called it exactly like it was. And I just thought, wow, um, if I lose my wife's respect, that is the, the worst thing I can lose. And so, like, I, it sounds horribly negative when you put it in these terms, but for me, the cost of failure is too high. Um, and that, when I'm on my worst days, I'm like, look, I gotta remind myself while I'm on this journey, the positive affirmation is I'm trying to be the best husband and father as I can be. And one of the ways I'll do that is by doing the best I can every day. And anything less is not authentic to those relationships. Sounds very elaborate, but it's very specific to me. And I think everybody, if they're willing to look hard, um, they can uncover what their motivation is and what the cost of not fulfilling it is. And uh, it's powerful, I think, when you look at that um, my friend Billy Murphy. Have you ever, ever heard of Billy Murphy? He has a website called Forever Jobless. I've not. Okay. Well, he's maybe he's a local celebrity. I don't know. He's like this really cool guy, very thoughtful guy, and he posted um, a website. I think it's called Go See Your Folks. And you don't know what it is, but you go there and you enter in how old are your parents, how many times do you see them, where do they live, right, what country do they live, in that sort of thing. Just like five questions, and then it says you will see your parents again 16 times. And the aha is, is like, oh, if all the averages based on who they are and where they live and what they do are true, I'm only going to see my parents 16 more times. What people do is they book a vacation to go see their parents. And I've just found that to be true so many th- in so many things when it comes to your attitude. We often think we're motivated by the positive, but we actually move much faster to avoid the pain. And I just use that trick on myself all the time.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. My gosh. And what was his name again?
1: Billy Murphy. Um, I just am a big fan. I think he's a deep thinker. I had coffee with him last week. And um, I, I don't know that he's ever had a job. He was a professional poker player, and then he, has bought, he buys and sells companies now.
0: Well, good for Billy Murphy. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so talk to us about beliefs. Second pillar. Uh,
1: um, that's a big part. We talk about um, mission, vision, um, values, beliefs, um, and perspective as a kind of the journey of leadership. And I think we even talk about that in some detail in the book. And um, beliefs and values um, are really important. But like beliefs are kind of the rules that we live by, you know. And we have we have them written on the wall in our company. Um, you know, it's win win. Um, we're going to seek first to understand. Um, and we have the, the, these are kind of the rules that we will conduct ourselves with. And I think that if we have beliefs that don't serve us well, we really have to work to get them out of our heads. And if you've read any of our books, like in our, this book, we had the introduction, and then the whole first part, and it's like six chapters, is called The Lies. And in our other books, we have the myths or the myth Understandings. And we believe as teachers that before you can get the good thoughts in, let's get the bad thoughts out. So we spend a lot of time on thinking, and I think it's incredibly important. So you have your attitude. And then what do I actually believe to be true? If your perspective is off, you're working just from a horrible foundation. So that's where I come from on beliefs, right? So what do I believe to be true about this situation? What's my perspective? And what are the rules that I'm going to I'm going to hold myself to as I go through here?
0: And we talked about the third pillar a little bit, but activities, anything you want to add to that?
1: Well, I mean, that's what, I mean, this book is about aligning your activities with the results you want in your life. So, um, and how to get there in the fastest, most assured way. So, I mean, thinking's great, but without action, you go nowhere. So it's the obvious thing and it's where people go. They often don't do the preparatory work on their beliefs and attitude beforehand. And as a result, they don't get the results they want, but, we just, we're all Pareto's you know, principle on steroids, you know, what's the 20% of the 20% of the 20%. We want to get right to the heart of what matters and stay there as long as part as possible.
0: Yeah. I talk about the activity side. It's like, you can have the best, I'm not a hockey guy or a hockey player, I should say, but you can have the best slap shot in the world. But if you can't skate, it, it doesn't matter. Right.
1: Yeah. 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 It's uh, that's not the pri- ultimately the priority. Um, if you had to, I mean, you want some level of skill, like if you can skate, but you can't shoot, are you still going to have a spot on the team? Maybe not. Um, that might be too specialized even for hockey, but yeah, there's probably a level you have to emphasize the skills that matter the most and in the right order.
0: So let's say I, uh, I give you a check today for 10 million bucks and you can't, um, pay off, you know, you can, you can't pay off debt. You can't invest it in normal stocks, bonds, mutual funds, things like that and uh, you can't give it to charity, what are you doing with it?
1: Um, I, mean, I might be cheating on this, but I just actually, I've, for the last two years, me and my best buddy, Ben Kenny, have been teaching in class on giving. And so I can't give it to charity, but um, one of the fun tricks we've been doing is teaching other people to give. Like he, he went to his old high school, and he was a very poor kid, and he's doing very well now. And he was funding like a $5,000 scholarship. You know, it wasn't like a giant, you know, endowment, but it was still a sizable check. And he went with his buddy that had gone to the high school with him too and hadn't done as much. And he wasn't, Ben didn't think he was as generous, and he felt it was because he'd never experienced giving. And so um, right before they started, you know, doing the ceremonies, he turned to his friend and he said, hey, um, I'm, you know, going to donate money for this scholarship. But you're going to give it and you're not going to tell anybody that I gave you the money. I just want you to experience what it feels like to be the person giving the check. Huh. And the guy went up there and they said, and welcome, you know, um, Brett Gilliland, who's, you know, done And they just announced him and he saw the kids look up to him and he's like, wow, that was $5,000. And that's a lot of money, but I didn't know how impactful it would be on so many levels. So, you know, like last week I went and bought coffee and um, like the <laughs> the barista was having a bad day and I said, I'm gonna leave $100 with you and would you just buy coffee for everybody who you think needs it? Um, and you can tip yourself a dollar for every coffee you make, but I want you to just be the one giving the coffees away. And it made a lot of people happy they got free coffee But I think the barista's day was transformed.
0: Absolutely.
1: They got to be the giver. So I'd probably take that $10,000 and um, I might start with my kids and some people who I thought, you know, because they're young and could learn some great lessons from being the giver. And uh, I would pick some other people and we would go out and we would teach other people to give. So it's not a charity, But I think that that might, if you, you can give so much more if you can teach other people to give than you could ever probably afford to give yourself.
0: Absolutely. A couple more questions here for you and we'll let you go today, Jay. But what would you give uh, yourself if you could go back 10 or 15 years? What advice would you give that that person?
1: Okay, so, um, (laughs) it's so weird. Because you said that year, that was like the year we were preparing to buy a house. And we bought a house and we didn't buy it as an investment. We still own it and we love it as an investment. I was like, my first thought was like, don't buy a single family home, go buy a duplex. Cause I I give that advice to people now. I'm like, if you're going to buy a first home and you're not, you don't have kids, like go buy a duplex and have another income stream. And then when you, instead of selling it, you know, have, you know save up another down payment and have two income streams behind you that was literally the first thing i thought about oh, I, go back and slap me in the head and say don't buy that house go buy a duplex
0: i like it uh last well, you're an so investment so least. that
1: appeals to you so there yeah, we
0: go no, no, it's good stuff so last question for you did you did you envision your success or are you shocked by it
1: um i think i do a better job of envisioning it today but i'm definitely surprised like i mean i I I meet, even, uh, I ran into a gal um, at our convention earlier this year uh, that I dated, almost married. And it was, like, right when I was graduating college, and I was, like, she's come and she's transformed her life. She's been CEO of multiple companies, and we were just standing there, and, like, we're— Happy to see each other and congratulating each other on our journeys. And like, did you ever think that you would be where you are today? And we were both like, no way. That, that kid had no idea the journey they were on. And then those handful of turns, those little important moments that would become pivotal and it would really send us down a certain path. And so, yeah, never predicted it. Today, I think I do a little bit better job because I'm a lot more purposeful about what I do. But, you know, no, I don't think anybody... Would have predicted it um, if they knew me even as, as, you know, as late as 25 to 28.
0: Yeah, they're like, Jay's doing what?
1: <laughs> they might not be surprised that I'm around books.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, but
1: the, all the business, I mean, there's pictures probably, thank goodness, pre-Facebook, you know, John Lennon glasses, like shoulder length, blonde hair, wandering around Paris like a bohemian. So, you, you know, I, that wasn't the vision of a future, you know, whatever I am now.
0: Well, Jay, I've got a, a ton of notes from today, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Where can our listeners find more uh, of your stuff?
1: Um, well, luckily, Jay Papuzan's easy, so they can definitely check me out on any of the social media that I'm on, Facebook, Instagram. I try to be responsive. I do time blocks, so I'm not in those things every day. Um, so if they have a question, and obviously go to theonething.com. Um, we've got all kinds of free resources there. Um, and uh, we even got a new podcast. If you want to check it out um, on the one thing that Jeff is running, and I've, you know, it's just a way, other ways for people to experience the book if they're wanting more. I
0: like it. Well, I appreciate your time, Jay. It's uh, been a pleasure having you on the Circuit of Success podcast. Much success to you, my friend. <laughs>